Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath is a cognitive neuroscientist and educator that studies how our thinking changes our minds. He's also the author of several books, including most recently, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. Today, we're going to cover how you can alter your, our cognitive schemas in education and grow our cognitive capabilities. Dr. Horvath, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, I think this is going to be a pretty interesting. There's a lot of topics that don't, at least when I first heard about them, don't sound intuitive, even from a medical background or a psychological background. And I'm really curious to see how some of these topics, such as your TED Talk and other resources that I've seen from you, how they can relate to our mostly healthcare and medical student audience. So this is going to be a good one. Believe it or not, I originally started in the teaching field. So I was an educator first. So that's where a lot of my research boils right back down to learning, thinking in the classroom, in study. This is my sweet spot. I love this stuff. Perfect. Actually, do you want to discuss a little bit about sort of your education past and what the yeah. audience should expect from, from your background? Sure, absolutely. So as I said, I was originally a teacher and then I went back to school to study neuroscience because I thought if I could crack the kind of code of the brain, then I could bring that back to school and say, hey, here's how we can teach better. Here's how we can learn better. Of course, it's never a straight shot like that, as your listeners know. I went from neuroscience into psych and into medical. So I've worked with epilepsy and depression. So now for about 12 years now, I've been in academia slash medicine working in clinics. My whole passion still now is going back to schools, working with students, with teachers to say, cool. It's still about the learning and thinking. If we do know the mechanisms that might not tell us exactly what to do tomorrow to study, but it will give us a better sense of what studying means, what learning means, and how we can take agency over that process. So there's not answers, but it's more power over your own processes. That's perfect. I love to cover the topics in this podcast that are more about learning how to learn, how to optimize students' learning. This podcast is about mnemonics, uh, visual aids, and other advanced accelerated learning techniques. So I think that is going to be a great background to give insight into this how to learn. And that's what I like. I think a lot of a lot of books have been written recently that just have, you know, kind of recipes like always do this, always do this. And those are awesome. But once you know why the recipe works, then you can start to make the recipe your own. You're not just stuck following someone else's instructions. So that's where the science of learning slots in perfectly. And is that where the science of learning uh, came from or why it was founded? Yeah, exactly. It, was, um, it started originally, it's just kind of educational neuroscience is can we link the brain to education? And then it just keeps expanding from there where you really quickly learn, okay, if you just stick with neuroscience, there's, there's not enough there. So you have to pull in your psych, your behavioral econ, your sociology, tap into as many research realms as you can to try and make the holistic learning picture. Great. I want to synergize these topics and, and get some advice for the student audience. So where would you say to start if students are not really familiar with these topics? Where can they learn about how to set up their own study schedule or find issues with what they're currently doing? Yeah, I think um, there's probably a ton of books and online resources with kind of those strategies and those schedules. And 
my book is one of them. It could be interested. But I think beyond that, I think kind of the kind of broader, the more thematic stuff, there's a really good book by Dan Willingham called Why Don't Students Like School? And it's one of those books with a title that just turns you off. But if you can get past that title, it's actually one of the best outlines in the human learning process that I've ever read. And it'll give you a real clear sense of why techniques work and where they're supposed to be in the process. So if it's Why Don't Students Like School? And there's another book called How People Learn, not How We Learn. That's Benedict Carey's book, Take or Leave It. This is How People Learn. Um, I think their head editor was Bransford, and it's similar. It'll give you the process from surface to deep to transfer. What's the actual learning process like? And that way you can start to kind of align yourself and say, all right, well, I'm here on this process. What strategies align there? Oh, I'm ready to push here. What strategies align there? So it's not like a how-to. It's a map that you can now start making your own path through. I like it. I like it. All right. There was a particular quote, or not quote exactly, but a topic that I heard you mention in a past podcast I I thought would be interesting for you to describe. And that kind of goes back to the introduction, I said, how thinking changes our minds. And that sentence might come off a little bit confusing if you're not familiar with these topics. And so what was it you were talking about how the software can actually change the hardware? Which is really trippy when you think about it. And the deeper you think about it, just, uh, I don't want to say the scarier, but the more intriguing it all becomes. So this is one of the rare, so we know the brain changes. And for a long time, we used to speak about the brain changing only in response to the environment. So change your context, change your behaviors, change your input, and the brain will change to kind of match that input. We now know that you don't even have to get off of your bum to change the brain. As far as your brain is concerned, there's no hard line between what you think and what you do. And this is why in sports, visualization is such a big thing. For a long time, we used to say, okay, before a big match, fire yourself up, you know, think of something you that gets you angry, uh, and then take that anger out onto the field. And, and that didn't really improve performance at all. So we're like, mm, what else could we do? We've now realized that no, don't just fire yourself up. If you visualize yourself swimming a perfect lap, running a perfect race, skiing a perfect hill, just by thinking about it, putting yourself in that position, your brain starts to change as though you just swam that perfect lap, as though you just ran that perfect race. So you don't even have to move just by first person imagining yourself doing something. The brain changes as though you did it. So now we've got this incredible feedback mechanism where our stories, our thoughts, our concepts feedback and change our perception, change our abilities, our reality in a sense. And that's that's a rabbit hole that just goes deeper and deeper. That's such a yeah trippy thing to talk about. And I kind of think about it in this way. Actually, I might have this wrong, so maybe you can clarify. We discuss visualization in the aspect of visual mnemonics in a lot of past episodes and how memory champions and other teachers of these mnemonics use them and how they're actually related to certain products that are becoming more popular in medicine because students love these visual, not animated, but visual mnemonics. And yeah, would, yeah. would visualizing that type of material that say when you're meditating or before you go to sleep or something like that also relate to this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So visualization in the sense I was using it was more kind of imagining yourself going through a behavior, going through an action and that then changing the brain as though you'd already done it. So in this instance, you could say, okay, like, let's say you have a big test next week. So long as you spend five to 10 minutes visualizing yourself taking that test, congratulations. By the time you get there, you will have already done it so many times. 
your brain's built its loop and you won't get as nervous. You won't feel as strange. You'll feel like you're back at home. So even if you've never been there, so far as your brain is concerned, you have. But what you're talking about, yeah, taps into kind of the broader idea of visualization where as human beings, we can tie vast amounts of information to incredibly small, simple symbols. And the idea being that if you can chunk all that information into that one symbol, congratulations, all you have to do is access that symbol and all the facts come with it. Uh, the deeper, con we call this conceptualization, but instead of building a concept, say, anatomy, you're building a concept that says scribble or triangle or blue square. And then you're just tying as many facts into that concept as possible. And so in that sense, yeah, before you go to bed, you recall that concept and then that pulls up all the facts. That type of recall, that type of visual linking, huge for memory boosts. That's if you can organize things like that, congratulations, you can stuff an encyclopedia in here without taking up much space at all. <laughs> that seems to be what a lot of the memory champions also preach. And what we're trying to do with some of the information on this podcast is bring those topics, first prove that they can be useful, literature yeah. back, science back, but also the techniques for doing so. So that's great to see sort of the instructors and the champions that use them describing how they do it, but then also seeing how it relates to neuroscience and to other aspects of actualization. And if you, if you pull it back then into learning, so there's, you've kind of got two aspects here. So you've got memorization, which is really good. That's kind of where the starting spot, where if you don't get the facts into your system, there's really no going past that. But beyond memorization, you can then go into conceptualization or what we then call deep learning. So a lot of people try and skip that memorization stage and go, well, I just want to go right into the understanding. That's a hard leap. But at least once you get it in, even if you're tying facts to something totally trivial, like a blue square. I'm tying all vasculature to this one image of a water bottle. Why? Because it just helps me organize my thoughts. Eventually, the more you think about them, the more you can organize all those facts into a more coherent concept, which is vasculature. Now you can discard your simple mnemonic, bring in that deeper concept, and all of a sudden you're understand you have the facts and an organizing principle. So now you start to play with your concepts where now you link vasculature with respiratory, with digestive with nervous and all these facts come with you. And now you're linking four concepts with millions of facts and you've got an incredibly dense understanding of how these systems work together. So the memorization is awesome. And just think later about how can I deeply conceptualize and start to really deep learn this material as well. I think a good way for this particular audience to understand this would be don't jump straight into board exam style questions. Those are supposed to be more deep learning, more conceptualization, but you need to have the memorization down first. You need the training first. Otherwise, you're not going to have the background, the foundation in which to answer. Yeah. We made that mistake at uh, the school I work at here in Melbourne. For two years, we changed the medical program into a problem-based program. So from your very first day, well, you're getting symptomology, you have to diagnose it. And what happened, We and I don't know why they didn't think about this in advance, is people weren't going anywhere. They weren't learning anything. They were having a good time, you know, talking about symptoms and diagnosis. But at the end, when you asked them about a disease, they really had no clue what was going on. So we realized, okay, you can't start on those deep problems. So we since pulled it back and now we have two years of straight learning. There's your dissections, there's your book work, there's your learning. And then we move into problem-based and now you see understanding conceptualization going through the roof. So front end with that, the facts, then move into the deep concepts. Oh, that's awesome. I've been intrigued by 
the PBL and problem-based learning for years. And I always see contradictory evidence because the different ways that they're set up. So it's great to see that not only have you proven the concept, but within the medical specific audience, which I think would be very beneficial for changing curriculum in other places going forward. Yeah, I love that too. The contradictory evidence you now see, it's how you're aligning it. People who define learning as pure memorization, say problem-based learning doesn't work. And you're right, it doesn't if that's your learning. But as soon as you redefine learning as deep conceptualization, then it does work. So here's where we say, you've got strategies, science of learning will just help you align the strategies. If you're at this point, here are the things that work. If you're at this point, here are the things that work. Perfect. So from a student perspective, a current student that's say first, second year student, they're still working on their memorization, but trying to get closer to the deep learning. Maybe their school doesn't have a problem-based learning setup. What are some strategies that maybe they can look into, or what are some lessons from neuroscience to benefit their own current study strategies? Three main kind of ideas I put forward for students. And the first one is, is this idea of get your mind right, get your story right. So if you go back to this idea of the visualization that our thoughts can change our brain, the biggest driver of our thoughts then is our story. The stories we have about our abilities, our skills, what we can do, those will largely determine what impact our learning, our study has. I think people made a mistake, like the mindset crew said, if you think you can do it, you can do it. Well, yeah, you you still got to do the work. (laughs) Thinking you can do something doesn't absolve you from needing to learn to engage. But what it does is it changes how that learning impacts you and sticks with you. So give me a kid who says, I can't do math, have them study math for five hours, and we can watch their brains start to change, adapt to that math while they're studying and then revert back to normal once they stop. It's as if nothing's stuck. Give me that same kid, change the story to, I can do math. Now they study for five hours, the brain changes to adapt, and when they're done studying, it largely stays that way. The the learning essentially has stuck. So if if you're worried about, you don't belong here, or I'll never be good at this aspect of medicine, or imposter syndrome, and that's cool, we all have those kind of thoughts, Jump on those early, get your story sorted out that, nope, you know what, with effort, I can succeed. I can learn this. And congratulations, all your learning is going to be a lot easier and more impactful after that. So kind of step one is get your mind right. Step two is to recognize that the key to deep memories is recall. We always focus so much on how information goes into the brain. Like, am I tying emotions to it? Am I elaborating it enough? And that's totally fine. That's good for a boost. But the biggest boost comes from accessing it. The more you pull a memory out, the deeper it becomes. The reason I remember Game of Thrones isn't because I watched it 10 times. It's because I've discussed it every day since I stopped watching it. So recall, find ways to pull this information out. And then the third thing I tend to say is, cool, at the front end, if you're, if you're in the first couple of years, recall for memorization is key. Do all your ties, do your concept maps. But the point is, you just got to be pulling this stuff out. It's not enough to have access on a computer. Just because you can look it up, that's not the same as knowing it. And if you ever want to go deeper with your understanding, you have to embody those facts. So put the time in on the front end. Later, when it comes time to the deep learning, then you can start to move into things like debating and reconceptualization and convincing and testing and arguing. People try and jump into that too early. Let me see if I can change your conception. No, no. Get the facts in first. 
And now your debates carry weight in your third and fourth year. So don't try and rush it all too fast. You will get to the point where your arguments start to get really good, really solid, really convincing because you have the facts, not because you're a convincing person. So don't try and run too fast. Get through the first couple of years and the fun stuff starts after that. Uh, I think that's very difficult for some students, uh, especially depending on what school you go to and they can differ so vastly having the same course in a different institute or with a different instructor that maybe the instructor jumped ahead a little bit, or maybe you got poor advice from a classmate saying, oh no, you just need to do question banks, but you haven't quite gotten that first and second step down before you kind of jumped ahead to the reconceptualization or elaborating on these topics. We call that the expert problem. The idea that once you get to a certain level, like I've been doing neuroscience for 12 years now, Most of the important stuff in what I teach is in what I don't say. When I'm talking with my colleagues, we don't even notice how little we say. We can say one word. Within that word is a million facts, and we all know exactly what that person is talking about. The problem is, is if I take that into my freshman class, I forget how little I actually have to say. I just assume they're picking things up, and they're not. They're not ready for that. So you have to recognize, yeah, you're... Your professors, by and large, aren't great teachers. They don't recognize that they need to bring it back to step one to help you in. People who have already gone through the course aren't great teachers. They're judging it from being done with it now. They're looking back, not on the process, but on how they understand the process now. So by by and large, in the first couple of years, you've got to be willing to take agency. You're in charge of this. I hate it because in high school, we got a lot of support from teachers. We get to see them every day. They're really keyed onto our processes where we're at. In uni, especially in med school, nobody cares. And they're just not trained in this at all. So this is where knowing the science of learning helps you take agency. And you've got to make your own path through that. And trust trust yourself rather than your professors, unfortunately. Very good point. Yeah, I always wonder what uh, instructors might be able to do or look for if they want to become better instructors because they're busy. They don't yeah. necessarily have a background in education and they have either other patients to look forward to or multiple classes and uh, the sort of disconnect between the student's current knowledge and maybe what's being taught in the class or what's trying to be pushed ahead don't always yeah. correlate very well. And you know what's interesting is, is for the most part, they don't care. And fair enough, their teaching isn't why they got into this profession, a lot of them. Some of them it is, and you know those teachers because they're really good at it. But for the rest of them, it's a side gig for them. They have to do it to keep doing their research. I remember that I was just thinking about this. My undergrad was actually in film. <laughs> I've lived a very weird life. And I just remember my freshman year, we had a sound class. So I don't know if they still have it in the U.S., but THX Audio, where the the theaters had that 5.1 surround sound and it became 10.2. And they had that really big booming sound effect at the beginning of movies to show you all the speakers. I remember that. Yes. I don't know. T- I used to love that sound before the star Wars movies. It was the coolest. The guy who developed THX, the audio system taught the first year audio class. And I remember getting, we got six, six weeks in, we're at midterm and everyone, there's about 200 kids in the room. We all open our midterm and you could just see us start looking around because none of it made sense. We didn't have a clue what had just happened, what he was talking about, what he meant. The questions didn't even make sense to us, although apparently we were supposed to know this stuff. So I just remember that's one of those key moments where I realized, wait a second, this isn't the same thing as I thought it was going to be. 
university isn't about anyone teaching me. This is about me learning. And to kind of sum that story up, I, <laughs> in the middle of the midterm, about 10 minutes in, I stood up, I crumbled up the paper and I threw it on the ground. I said, this is trash. If you want me to pass your test, you got to teach me. And I left thinking this is going to be my big Spartacus moment and everyone's going to stand up and say, yeah, I'm with him. Nobody else got up and left. So I failed that class, but <laughs> <laughs> tried to take a stand. The world didn't care. But that's when I learned, cool, I better I better figure out a new way and, and handle this business myself. It kind of makes me wonder, although this is a completely different topic we don't need to go into because it'll take way too long. The purpose of some of these schools now, if if we need to focus on teaching ourselves and if there are third party resources out there kind of brings into question exactly what the role is for different levels of education and different you know purposes of attendance policies and such yeah and it's funny if you think the original purpose of education especially tertiary is to engender thinking is to improve the human condition try and narrow in on this concept of truth but once it became nope you're just training for a career like for film i was just training to be in film then there's got to, <laughs> yeah, I wonder if having the most important, knowledgeable man in sound is the right move to get me a job in the sound world. The answer has got to be no. But at the same time, it's cool because I can always write down on my CV, I knew the guy who did THX. So it's this big catch 22. Who knows what the right answer is at this point? It's just all debate. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's too much money involved too, but that's a whole nother problem that we don't need to That get. is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's another topic that I thought would be pretty interesting to cover is you discussed in another resource how failure can lead to theta or growth of the mind, whereas yeah. it's sort of ignoring our errors causes like a beta stage and then we forget information within 72 hours. And I was curious if you could elaborate on that and how it might relate to medical student studies. Yeah. Oh, I love this. So the brain kind of has two modes of learning. One you can kind of call, well, just for simplification sake, we'll call autopilot. You have a story, you know how the world should be. The world comes in, you just run your autopilot. This is like when you drive to school and you pull into the parking lot and 20 minutes later, you're like, whoa, what happened in the last 20 minutes? You're just running a program. The other mode is what we'll call coder mode. So this is when you actively have to kick into the present moment your attention becomes focused. And in this moment, you can change your autopilot story. So one of the best and easiest ways to get into your coder mode is to screw up. If you have a prediction, a way of, the, of thinking about the world, an autopilot program that fails, you don't have a choice. Your coder automatically kicks on. It's a safety mechanism. So if you've ever been walking down the stairs and you miscounted and there was one extra step and you go stumbling forward, in that moment, that jolt you got that's your coder kicking in saying, uh-oh, our prediction's wrong. We need to change our story because it could be dangerous. We might die. The brain doesn't know. So when you make an error, when a prediction fails, in that moment, your entire system becomes primed to learn. You will never learn faster, easier, or better than you will in that moment. Unfortunately, and you can feel it, it's a jolt to the system. You know when coder kicks on. Unfortunately, in that moment, you then enter into a choice. You can engage with the coder in which case you start to update. And this is what we call theta mode. Is if So you make an error, your coder kicks on, and you go, yep, what do I got to update? Let me change my understanding. Let me change my program. The brain flips to theta. That is the signature that essentially plasticity is happening, that the brain is rewiring itself, that you're now updating your understanding. But that's a choice. You need to choose to engage with that error. So that means the other choice is to disengage. So the error alarm goes off, the coder kicks in, something went haywire. And in that moment, you can also go, 
well, wait a second, it doesn't really matter back to normal. Like when you do stumble down the steps, there's no need to update your story. You just made a mistake. So you shut the coder back down, back to normal. Your brain flips into a mode called beta and 72 hours later, it will erase the memory of you having made that mistake. So it's, it's a safety mechanism as well. The brain goes, well, you must know what you're doing. If the mistake wasn't that important, cool. Don't worry about it. Go back to normal. So you don't get to choose when your coder comes, comes on. You make an error, your coder comes on whether you want to or not. But in that moment, you then get to choose. Do I go with it and update or do I avoid it because it feels easier and just forget that it happened? Unfortunately, in education, most people avoid it because it doesn't feel great the coder feels kind of uncomfortable. And so they just kind of go back to normal. No, I don't want to know. But I promise you, the only way to move forward is to engage with those error moments. When you feel it kick on, it might suck in that moment, but go, cool, this is where I need to be focused. What did I do wrong? How do I need to update my story? You learn to love those moments, those errors, that feeling of the coder. Congratulations, that's evolution. You'll start moving so much faster than anyone else around you. So the big secret is screw up, and then engage with those screw-ups. That's growth. That requires a whole nother class on its own. First, being aware of it as sometimes it's going to be very obvious, but it seems like other times the student might not be aware that their coder kicked on and that they have a choice to make at that point, or they might already be habituated to maybe a less positive way of thinking or switching it off basically and going into that beta mode. So this can be so complicated, especially let's say if a student's during their dedicated board exam time and they're going through dozens to hundreds of questions in a day, that's a lot of times that that coder is potentially kicking on and off and just uh, fatigue. Unfortunately, you're you're right. The, The coder can only be on for a certain amount of time per day, unless you're in a flow state, which is a whole different ball game. For the most part, for the coder to kick on and start changing things, that takes a lot of energy. So you just can't do it all day, every day. You've, you've felt it. If you've ever done a huge study session and then just totally zonked out after that, that's because you literally tapped all your energy. There's nothing left in there. So you're absolutely right. You can't stay in it all the time. So a good rule of thumb is to now that you kind of know this process is try and get meta. Just try and pull your attention back over the next week or two and see if you can find these moments when the coder kicks on and see what your natural reaction is. Don't change anything at this point. Just see if you can find your own patterns. And from there, you can start to build your best response. I say this because even though I teach this, I know my own pattern is is when I make a mistake and my coder kicks off, my first reaction is to shut it down and defend myself like nobody's business. And I know that that's my pattern. And for about 24 hours, I will do nothing but defend myself. But once I leave a situation and go back home and I'm alone again, then I can think back to that moment, reactivate it and go, okay, what do I need to learn? Then I change my story and I come back the next day and I go, okay, y'all were right. My bad. So I learned I'm not good at doing it in the moment. I need to go away, reset and do it on my own time and then bring it back in. So it sucks, but people learn that. My wife knows that. She knows if we get in a fight, don't try and convince me. She says, all I got to let you do is go away and you'll come back tomorrow and tell me why I was right. (laughs) So she's learned that my updating happens on the side, but it took me a while to learn that that's my pattern. So just spend a couple weeks seeing how you handle errors now, and then you'll know your best point of attack to say, cool, here's what I got to do when, when the time comes. Yeah, that's, that's going to take more practice. I have so many methods that I try to incorporate now from meditation to journaling to you know, any other productivity hack that I've read about over the past few years. And it still seems like you're not going to catch everything. There's still going to be a, a bit 
that you can improve on or that you're not aware of at the time. Yeah. And, and, the, and the good news is you, you, you'll keep catching them. As you get better, it, it's the same as learning. It's one step at a time. It, I've, since I've been in neuroscience, say we've been doing neuro enhancement for 10 years. The stories I used to tell about neuro enhancement a year in year one, very different than the stories I tell now. Same devices, same tools. It's just I've been able, as you said, just to keep tacking new information on. Every time I go back to study it, I see something new. You never read the same book twice. You never watch the same movie because you keep growing your story. So that's, you're right. You'll never get to the end. You just got to find your pattern for it. Would it be fair to sum up some of this information since there's so much of it and a lot of it might not be very familiar to students as step one is sort of your pre-work, which is getting in the right mindset and sort of overcoming that imposter syndrome. And then step two would be trying to monitor during, but also step three would be analyzing post hoc. Yeah. And congratulations. That is metacognition. You say step one is aspire, set your goals and analyze, figure out what it is you're doing, what you need to do to achieve. Step two, act, do it. Step three, assess. Step four, adapt. That's the metacognition cycle. And and you just nailed it. So get your mind right at the beginning, have your plan of attack, always be willing to adjust, adjust it. And your plan of attack now is all these techniques you've been giving your listeners, all these concepts of recall. How do we link? How do we conceptualize? And then the assess and adapt. That's when we come back and say, okay, I've noticed myself blanking out at these moments, or I've noticed myself turning off in these stages. What can I do to address that? And we just keep going forward. That ladies and gentlemen is learning in a nutshell. (laughs) I love it. It sounds so simple, but it's going to take some time for each individual to implement and and improve on. And I guess there's no mastery. It's sort of a constant improvement type of deal. Yeah. And and the good news is, is a lot of people try and skip that analysis step. And that's one of the most important ones, believe it or not. So a computer machine learning happens by aspiring, assessing, adapting. Cool. A plant learns by aspiring, assessing, adapting. A dog learns by aspiring, assessing, adapting. What humans can do that so far as we can tell no other animal can do, or at least not anywhere near as powerful as us, is analyze. That's before we even act, we can think our way through it and go back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Our brain doesn't draw a line between what we think and what we do. It changes and learns the same way. So that ability to analyze, to start a problem, to start tackling it, to start solving it, to find all the mistakes and the issues and the ways to go and the ways not to go without even getting out of your seat. That's the key to us, to our human learning, to what makes us so powerful. So don't skip that step. Spend your five minutes planning out your plan of attack. And whereas a computer might need five hours of trial and error to reach the same decision you might make in five seconds to know, oh, well, this isn't a good technique. This isn't a good technique. That's what makes us so powerful. So don't ever skip that analyze step. It's such a powerful one. I love it. Well, we've covered a lot of material here. I know it's going to take some time just to analyze everything that's been said so far, let alone implement it. (laughs) But I like to finish off these segments with uh, what I call just three wishes. Are you ready for your wishes? Hit me on, bring it on. All right. First one is, since we cover a lot of memory stuff, is there anything that you wish you could remember better? (sighs) (laughs) I'm very much aware of all the stuff that I don't remember well. And I don't care enough to try harder at it, but I'll go with the con- my wedding anniversary. I, I just never stopped to memorize it. So my wife always kicks my butt on that one. I wish I could remember that one better. 
you need to listen to some of the past episodes then maybe get some more techniques. Down. Dude, I know, it's one of those, like, I know I could do it. I just have so much other stuff that I care about. I know that sounds horrible, but I have so much other stuff I'm trying to memorize that that, that just kind of takes a backseat. I figure she can handle it. She's my Google when it comes to those things. <laughs> Got it. Next one. Is there anything you wish you could change in education? Uh, yes. And it is the respect due to teachers. Um, for whatever reason, we've and, and I think tertiary by and large pushes this. The craft of teaching has taken such a massive backseat that people don't think it even exists at this point. Teachers are just tools. They're just levers to be pulled. If you can't do something, you teach. It's a fallback. No, teaching, it, just like medicine, just like everything else, it's a, it's a craft. And some people are great at it, and they've spent their life studying it. And we need to respect teachers again and recognize that what they do, nobody else can do. So that, that would mean for tertiary education, recognizing that just because you're an expert in a field, that doesn't make you an expert teacher. And maybe we need to separate the two and be okay with that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and that's part of the reason that I love watching lectures from different MOOCs, you know, like edX yeah. and Coursera and, and seeing how they present a similar topic, something I'm already taking in another course and the difference in the education from one to the next. It's, it's teachers are, they are real. It's a real profession. And the sooner we can start to respect that and recognize that again, ideally we can boost education just by saying, wait, you're doing real work. Great. Keep doing it. Here's your agency. You take it over. Perfect. Last one is if there is one thing that you could change in medicine, what would it be? Uh, <laughs> uh, the one thing I, I'm sure your listeners are, are starting to get a sense of this. We tend to conflate processes with people. So cool. There are certain things in the body that just happen. They're just processes. They're just physical systems. Cool. The problem is when you start to relegate all human interaction, all human thought, all human psychology down to mere processes. The fact that humans are kind of like a machine is awesome. To assume that humans are nothing but machines is a massive mistake. And unfortunately, a lot of my training and a lot of what I've, I've worked at research-wise reduces the human being to a set of probabilities. I think it was, was it Newton who said the language of nature is written in mathematics? I don't think he meant human intuition. I don't think he meant human emotions, human achievement, human interaction. I think he was talking very differently about nature and us. So that's the one thing I would change is just a recognition that, cool. Processes are there, and a lot of our disease models require that, but that doesn't substitute for the patient. And there is still a lot to be said about human psychology that we just can't touch at this point. And that's okay. We don't need to solve it like a puzzle. We can deal with it one-on-one -on -one just fine. <laughs> Great points. I wish we could deal with it one-on-one -on -one a little more easily, but depending on... Uh, I'm not sure how the healthcare system is in, in Australia, but I'm sure you're aware of the time limitations put on physicians in the U.S. anyway can be a little, little tricky. The time issue, and that's the information problem, is, is now we've, as doctors, as, as medical students and soon-to-be doctors, a lot of our agency has been passed on to the tests and the machines that we use. We're not responsible. It's the computers that are responsible. And once that happens, then, yeah, we get 10 minutes per client because we're just letting the machines run the system. I don't know that there's an answer there, it's a, but it's a social thing. The one thing I don't abide is when people say, yeah, but that's the world we live in. That sentence 
maintains that world. So long as you say that's a world we live in, it's because it's a joke, man. If we stop doing it tomorrow, the world wouldn't stop spinning. So that's not the world we live in. That's the society we've created. And if you don't like it, then we're allowed to change that story. So we can't just be lax with it. We do what we can to try and fix it and dance around it. Yeah, it's not a, a natural law. It's a social conformative law. Exactly. For <laughs> I know you gave two resources. Uh, why don't students like school and how people learn? Are there any other recommended readings or resources for students interested in uh, neuroscience that are also in medicine? I think The Brain That Changes Itself, Norman Doidge's book. That was the book I read, gosh, 15 years ago that got me down this path. And it's the only pop science book I've ever read that as I've learned more, I keep going back to, and it's still good. Most pop science books, the more you learn, you go back and you're like, oh my gosh, that was so overly simplified. For whatever reason, that book stands the test of time. So The Brain That Changes Itself, I still think is one of the best of the best for us. Huh. I haven't heard of that one. Now I'm curious. I have to look into that. It's shocking. All the There's a whole chapter on TMS and brain stimulation. That's what got me on my path. And it's still good to read. It's so inspiring too. Every time I get fed up with my field, I read that. I'm like, yeah, but we can do good work. Great. <laughs> Are there any last minute thoughts for or thoughts or recommendations for students? No, man. Just, just to keep it up. Look, you... Your big, your ultimate goal in this field isn't just to master it. It is to master it at the front end, but you master it so that you can change it later. It's one of those things where I say, if you want to think outside the box, you got to know the box first. So right now you're doing what I call paying your dues. Once you get to the end, remember that these were just dues you have to pay. Once you get to the end of this, you're allowed to make your own decisions, make your own arguments. In fact, that becomes your job. You need to change this field. Coming through it and doing the same thing we've done for the last 60 years ain't enough. Come through it, figure it out, and then start changing it. That's, that's evolution. That's what every new expert is meant to do. So you're in charge of this machine. <laughs> Students are the future. Exactly. And they're meant to change. I, there's nothing worse than a student that agrees with me. I'm always like, no, 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 no. Your job is to learn and then disagree with me. Otherwise, I didn't do my job. So don't just take it hook, line and sinker. Learn it all and then start pushing back. A great mentality to have. You must make an awesome instructor. Oh, I, my students, I always say the day you come up to me and say, I think you're full of, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, but you know what I'm going to say. Yeah. That's the day when you're ready to graduate. Once you're willing to push back to me with evidence, not just because you don't agree with me, you can make an argument. Congratulations. You get an A plus. You're out of my class. Move on. <laughs> Got it. Besides uh, stop talking and start influencing, are there any ways for students to reach out to you? Yeah, I've got a, um, a website called LME Global, Learning Made Easy Global, that has just some coursework for students if, if you're interested in more about learning there. And yeah, if you just, just look me up online, there's some resources I've put up, some videos and stuff just that go into different learning techniques and ideas. So I'm out there. If you Google me, you'll find me, I'm sure. Awesome. All right. Dr. Jared Coney-Horvath, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No, thanks for having me. This has been great.